Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Significant Watches, episode 31. We're a man short today, but that's not going to stop us from covering auction season because it's begun in full force this week. Uh, I'm your host, Tony Traina here in Chicago. I'm going to send it down to Eric Wynn first in Palm Beach. Eric, how are you doing? Great. How about you, Tony? I'm doing great. Eric is posted up in his bedroom, I believe, because Charlie Dunn has commandeered the famous Eric Wind office space with all of those uh, vintage ads in the background. Charlie, how are you doing? I'm good. I've locked myself and barricaded uh, the door. I'm taking all of his travel alarms and uh, all of the cool clocks that I can. Lapis lazuli uh, Atmos is now mine, Eric. Good luck. Unfortunately, no Hodinky travel clock in there. Not a chance. <laughs> I sold that one to Adam Golden. I want credit for that eventually. Yes. Uh, no Capri Sun this week, but uh, I did get a few comments. No cheese boxes for Eric this week. <laughs> no, I did get a few comments about it on the last episode, so that was good. Capri Sun is really, a, is that's like an OG. Um, it's not, yeah, and just for all you listeners at home, it was an Honest Kids juice box, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first time we host a significant watch is meetup, which will come eventually, I'm sure. I think we'll just have Capri Sun on tap and nothing else. You know what's funny is Eric and I were thinking about doing a um a uh kind of a watch get together at a pizza place that's probably the best pizza I've ever had in Florida. Um just actually probably about thirty minutes away from us. And no I really question. want you to come and, and check out this pizza since you're a Chicago uh resident. It's called Peter's Pizzeria in Boca Raton. It's worth uh, it's worth the visit, no question. All the best pizzas in Boca Raton. Uh, I look forward to it on my next visit to to Boca, um, which my next visit would be my first. Uh, so I think we're going to start. You know, auction season is in full force, as I mentioned. Monaco Legends happened just a few days ago, as as we record this. They sold. Uh, 22 million euros worth of watches. Basically, it was mainly vintage watches. And funny enough, the the sort of the catalog headliner was a yacht master that was not a vintage watch. It sold for 2.3 million euros and was uh, from the former Rolex CEO, commissioned by him for him to commemorate the 10 million chronometer of Rolex and all other kinds of things. There were some other headliners as well. A, a Paddock World Timer 2523 sold for 3 million euros. And then a White Gold 3700 sold for, for 1.3 million. But, you know, across the board, it was mainly vintage watches. A lot of people I talked to seem really excited about the catalog and the fact that it was so, so sort of vintage focused. Uh, Eric, sort of high level thoughts on what we saw out of Monaco Legend and, and what it might mean for uh, the Geneva auction season as it, as it turns to, to that pretty soon. Yeah, I thought um, it showed kind of continued strength, I would say, overall for the vintage watch market. Nothing crazy uh, from my perspective. Um, Certain brands were hotter than others, obviously. Um, I thought Vacheron was a little bit soft, unfortunately. Uh, Rolex was pretty strong overall. you know, it all comes down to the old condition, condition, condition uh, moniker. But I thought Rolex was strong. Royal Oaks were kind of okay, not amazing, which is reflects a general trend in the market. Um, complicated Patek did 
did well, whether it was the two fourteen sixty threes or the twenty five twenty three, some of the interesting shape watches um uh, did okay, not crazy. Um, you know, Cartier is still kind of strong overall. Um so yeah, I thought uh I thought overall it was a good solid auction. I think it was maybe their highest uh grossing auction ever. They certainly the team was calling it their best auction. So um, I would pretty much agree with that. They continue to grow more and more established, uh, I would say, in the in the auction market. And, you know, they're definitely one of the leaders for vintage watches, given, you know, how Phillips, Sotheby's, and Christie's have taken a big toward, turn toward contemporary watches the last few years. I think one of the things that they've also excelled at is really kind of taking a hold of the design-focused timepieces, these things from the 1960s and 70s that you probably couldn't have sold anywhere online, but they just happen to be in the right placement of, you know, collectors that appreciate interesting design watches. Um, I'm trying to think of which which one it was. It was a Chopard, um, not the kind of, like, vehicle grill watch, but one of those got ran up a ton. It was the um, mesh bracelet, the bangle styled bracelet. And I'm thinking to myself, no way that's going to crack 9,000 euro. And it went up to 39,000. And, um, you know, it followed also right behind a really cool, interesting Piaget with stone dial. Um, there was a lot of really interesting design watches, um, not just Patek and, and Piaget, but, you know, everything. So, I mean, that was something that's kind of one of the highlights is there's a really good range of watches in the catalog. That's kind of a genre that is exciting to see getting appreciation. So, Charlie, as much as you've looked at, well, and Eric too, as much as you've looked at the Geneva catalogs coming up, was the Monaco legend from a vintage perspective, the most exciting catalog, I guess we could say. Maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there was more interesting things in, in this, in the Monaco auction, at least to speak to my taste. Um, you know, there were certainly things that we were we were kind of joking about earlier that, you know, they were you kind of are astounded, like, how did that thing get, you know, that result? Um, and it's not really of interest in the, in the vintage realm, but it is cool to see a, a lot of the watches. And I, I guess, I don't know, Eric, what do you think? I think um, I'm pretty excited about Antiquorum, you know, a particular couple lots in that sale, which is a big sale like the typical Antiquorum Geneva sales, the the chameleon, of course, Patek Philippe, and they have a five seventy uh you know, time only in yellow gold with black dial. I always love the black dial in a yellow gold case. That looks very attractive. Uh but going back to Monaco Legend before we turn our gaze toward upcoming Geneva auctions, one of the interesting lots uh, I've studied these and have always found them interesting, but the Breguet Alarm, which was lot 153, um, had a Breguet certificate and box. Uh, and it had, interestingly enough, a Gubelin buckle, which who knows if it was born on that. But that watch, which is essentially kind of a junky alarm hey, watch, yeah. like they didn't really make that case. I've You can buy it similar junky cases and dials i've 
you know, bought random ones for like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars with the same movement and essentially same case. Uh, just not saying Breguet on the dial, but uh, but it went for twenty six thousand euros. So that was pretty pretty phenomenal. And you know, the last Breguet alarm I saw come up for auction was about a over a decade ago at Sotheby's. Uh, the quality on that one was even a little better in terms of configuration not necessarily condition and that one went for about ten thousand dollars at the time but uh these are extremely rare watches uh and as a a sort of an alarm watch fan it was neat to see um you know it literally might be a long time until we see another at auction yeah i'm not mad at it i i think it's like you know we always say like from the volcano cricket perspective is if it's got the a shield it's like not as exciting um of a caliber as the 120s and the msrs i think that alarm watches still are really really cool particularly when you get into the oversized stuff um you know the 303 001s and such eric you've got a good collection of those especially even the sports models um you know i'm not I don't want to. I don't want to hate on the watch. It is objectively rare, and it is kind of. I think the person who buys that has a interest in in rarity rather than you know the iconic um, alarm collection. They want something that's objectively very rare. But to um, to follow up on the Breguet, I mean, it is exciting to see those Breguet uh, chronoscope pocket watch near you included. Those used to be a really hot watch in the '90s. You see them all throughout the catalogs. They're quite rare i mean i think that there's been some effort to revive that design in a wristwatch from what i gather talking to um a uh, collector who's interested in making it not a piece unique but um kind of their own creation with a brand um those are i mean really imaginative to imaginative designs they're called the chronoscope and they have the wandering hour and in a lot of the watches and it's a um patent that uh i think Robert Cart, who I believe is an English watchmaker, or maybe he's a French uh, fellow, but he had um, basically given this patent uh, allowed for Breguet watches. There's some Cartiers, a brand that you see them in Vacherons as well. Really interesting kind of um, design. So it was cool to see that one. That's kind of like a higher level Breguet. Ironically, that one sold for, I think, half the price of not, it's 16,000 euro f- compared to the alarm watch. I'd personally much rather have the pocket watch or any any uh chronoscope model any other lots you guys wanted to zoom in on in monaco before we uh before we hop a plane to geneva there was that awesome rolex prince i mean it's not often you see nice princes that one looked like it was you know world-class example eric anything else from you yeah um i find the yacht master interesting um not because i like it but I just wonder what its chain of ownership was. Um, I wonder what its chain of ownership uh, was to get to auction. Um, you know, <laughs> why, it, why it would be in uh, private hands. And uh, I don't really think they, they discussed that, correct? <laughs> so it's, it's a... You know, I never thought we would see a yacht master other than the Paul Newman yacht master Daytona's going for uh over two million dollars, but it's uh 
phenomenal piece. It's not my favorite by any means. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just wonder how, how it made its way to the market. So you're not a fan Does of it... platinum yacht masters is what you're saying? No, not at all. Does a question me. like that, a sort of ownership question, can that kind of keep the price down or bidders out of it, Eric? I don't know. In this case, you know, there were, um, I just find it interesting because there's been obviously a few Daytonas that were platinum and other special things made for Rolex CEOs that have gone for millions of dollars from the nineties. Remember at Sotheby's, there was one with a lapis style, et cetera. Yeah. Those were gifts though. So it was kind of easier to figure out how those were coming to market. Right. Yeah. They were gifts supposedly to girlfriends of Rolex executives. uh, And, you know, I don't know, Obviously, this was not meant to be a gift, but it is. It is does beg the question where these these watches came from and where where they're going. Do you think that Rolex had had um, have given the opportunity before the auction came up would have purchased this if offered it? I don't know if it. It doesn't seem like something they would necessarily want for their museum but you just wonder if um the guy sold it to a friend or something and it was supposed to never come to market and then it came to market um (laughs) you just you just wonder kind of the uh the path these watches uh led to to reach an auction and uh if this was from uh a heinegger if he was unhappy about it or what what exactly what exactly happened you had some tutor things you wanted to bring up Charles? the tutor black bay 58 for rowing blazers you mean <laughs> i did not follow that i'm so sorry yeah yeah uh it's been uh you know fun to see their reaction we submitted the list i got as you can imagine i got a lot of messages from clients and friends asking why they didn't have a Tudor rowing blazers watch. Uh, but uh, we submitted the list last May. So it, it, it took a while to, uh, for the whole endeavor to, to come together. But uh, yeah, it was fun. What did my you favorite think? was, my favorite was seeing people, um, ex employees of rowing blazers commenting on the post saying, why wasn't I offered one? I worked there for three months or six months. <laughs> <laughs> you've had a few you've had a few black bays where does this one rank in your uh in your bb58 collection hierarchy well it made me get rid of all the other ones so uh you know i like uh i like the fact that you were able to get the other text at six o'clock off of the dial uh you know usually it has the depth rating and the superlative chronometer text and it, it can get pretty busy when you add another, you know, double stamp or something on there. So I thought it was cool that you were able to get the uh, the neon noir logo all alone there, and I think it cleans up the watch. And it's you know a testament to you all because not every double stamp or corporate signed tutor that that they've done is like that. So I think that that makes it really cool. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, I still. Uh can't really believe it when i hold the watch that it happened honestly so it's been, been i mean what's next eric after after conquering tudor where else can you go i don't know 
but uh, we'll figure it out, I'm sure. <laughs> How many designs did you uh, submit or maybe play with, I guess, is the better question. Yeah, so we had over 100 designs that we came up with during the design process. Um, my vote was to do exactly what you said, Tony, which was remove all the text above six o'clock. You know, in one, there were some negative comments, just putting, throwing a logo on the dial isn't really a design and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but uh, in general, the response has been extremely enthusiastic. But uh, you have, Rowing Blazers has a number of different logos, obviously. Uh, and there's a number of ways it could take take shape and sizes and colors and everything else. Uh, and before that, you have to pick a model. You could take any tutor model and, and play with it. So uh, Black Bay 58 is my favorite tutor. Um, I tried a 54 recently. I still prefer the 58 personally um, since our last podcast. But uh, obviously there's two different models. There's the blue and there's the black. I don't love the shade of blue they have. And they obviously then you go into the silver, the bronze, and the, the gold. Um, for me, I like the Black Bay 58 on a bracelet. So, and I like steel. So that was kind of settled. So between the, the blue and the black Black Bay 58s, I like the black a little bit more. Um, I just don't love that shade of blue. Uh, personally so um so yeah we opted for that then we had to uh settle on a logo we actually submitted one logo and it was rejected one design and it was rejected and we submitted a second design and it was approved um but uh yeah i'm very very happy with uh how it ended up what was what was going through your mind when tutor rejected you like the thirsty uh designer that you are i was relieved because i didn't love the first design like as much <laughs> as my counterpart jack in the rowing blazers team so uh i was actually happy we could have another shot at it and i was very happy with what we submitted yeah to say i you know you started a few years ago with uh the Seiko design and then the, the Zodiac Harry's thing was maybe a year or so ago or six months ago and now Tudor, obviously. So it's been cool to see the rowing blazers watch collaborations sort of grow over the past few years. And I know you've been involved in it from the start. So excited to see what's next. Yeah, absolutely. One yeah, thing I'm probably. dying to know is whether the um, Black Bay 54 bracelet is interchangeable with the Black Bay 58 head because they've got that glide lock in the 54 and I need that micro adjustment really, really bad. I've been told the for people that want that, the Ranger bracelet is the one to do. It's also because it doesn't have ribbons, uh, which some people like to complain about. Yeah, I can't do a Ranger. <laughs> it would be funny though if, if you submitted the, uh, the logo um, just with rowing in like the bottom, the bottom hemisphere of the dial, like Ranger used to be on those vintage models. I was selling the Ranger this weekend, and I was thinking about that. I was like, "What if it just said rowing? That'd be kind of funny." But in red, rather, yeah, it would have been it would have been totally rejected immediately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The um, yeah, so that was fun. Um, also wanted to bring up the Arno 
family in a couple ways are kind of dominating the watch world right now. Um, Tony, you had uh, posted a Wall Street Journal article about the Arno kids uh, and wanted to hear any comments you might have about that. Oh, I just thought it was an interesting article, you know, kind of a reported article with some sources inside LVMH about the five children and how they've taken on high-level leadership positions over the past few years, especially as the father, Bernard, has gotten older, obviously, and how they might be positioning themselves to sort of take over the entire company one day. Uh, to, to be seen, obviously, I think a lot of people, the natural thing to say is, oh, it's a real-life succession sort of playing out before our eyes. And I think that's a little bit overblown. It seems that there's uh, some you know, genuine familial connections, and they all seem to actually get along, uh, the five kids, I mean. And I don't think there's actual bad blood between any of them the way there is uh, in the actual succession show. So I think that's a little bit overblown and I think they all kind of get along, but I think it's also cool. Um, you know, Hodinki just did a talking watches with, with one of the Arnauds with the John Arnaud who has taken a real liking to watches as has his older brother, Frederick at tag Hoyer. And it seems that they both have a, a real interest in watches. So I think personally I'm rooting for, for one of them to maybe helm the top of the company one day to get a real watch nerd in charge. Um, I think some people were perhaps skeptical when they, you know, clicked into the talking watches that Jean Arnaud might not have, um, I don't know, they were just skeptical because of obviously who he is and his family name. But I think his collection that he showed on the on the thing at least exhibited some level of, of taste and appreciation for, for watches and watchmaking outside of uh, just the conglomerate that his family family owns. I don't know how you guys felt about it, but I think both of them seem to have a gen genuine appreciation for for watches and watchmaking outside of just the the brands that that they own or that the Arno family owns. I didn't watch it, but someone came over to the office the other day and was encouraging me to watch it, so maybe I will. But um yeah, I mean it's cool. What did he have in his collection? He had a thirty nine seventy, which I was which was cool to see. He had a couple Louis Vuittons, obviously. Uh, he had a, a paddock with kind of a dial that was redone in the 70s, but a, an old 1920s, 1930s, a rectangular paddock and, you know, a few other things uh, that were that were kind of cool and seemed to show some level of uh, some level of taste. And I think the other story I, I read about him recently was was in the Financial Times about the relaunch of, of Gerald Genta. And it, it told the story of how he kind of approached Evelyn, I believe is the name of the widow. Um, yeah. how he kind of approached Evelyn and tried to get her involvement and buy-in before kind of trying to re re relaunch a brand that he he or the family had the rights in, um, which he didn't necessarily have to do, I suppose. But it seemed like he approached her from uh, a perspective of like having a genuine appreciation for for what Gerald Genta meant to, meant to watches and watchmaking and all of this type of stuff and eventually got her buy-in and is going to sort of have access to all of his personal archives. And it sounds like there's a lot in there, both watches that were designed and were not designed. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see how they use that and uh, La Fabrique attempt to, to relaunch the brand. It sounds like it's going to be at a, a really high end, the same, the same way they're doing things with, with Daniel Roth to make them really high end, you know, collector grade things. So it'll be interesting to see, but I think they're kind of, going about it the right way when they're when they're relaunching these these brands um which is which is good to see yeah what uh what metal did he have the 3970 in i can't remember i think it was a white one. Oh, that's good 
I like his collection already. It's <laughs> sure. Uh, Eric, you kind of already teased the Geneva auction stuff. You teased a couple of the things at Antiquorum. Do you want to talk about the chameleon first? Um, yes. So, interesting watch. Um, the watch actually does not have an it, its extract yet. Um, and that's one thing I would honestly... I don't know if it's, uh, you know, Antiquorum's fault or um, Patek, but I will say, you know, when I worked at Christie's, we had kind of a uh, direct line in for getting extracts. And then a couple years ago, they changed it. So the auction houses were kind of put um, in line with everyone else, like, you know, stand behind you know joe schmo ordering an extract and that has put the the uh <laughs> i've got a i'm waiting for a phone call to help our assistant nicole because her tires popped but i'm getting like a thousand texts an hour i can't silence the phone because i need to I'll, know. Talk, I'll talk about the chameleon while you figure no. all that out no no we're fine <laughs> can, I, can I zoom out for just a second? I'll here. I could talk about it for just a second. It's a so the chameleon. What is it? It's a it's a, a vintage paddock from I think the forties, and it's uh the brace. It's a bracelet watch, and the bracelet is shaped like a chameleon, and it's supposedly one of two of these watches. The other one sits in the Patek Philippe Museum, and this one will be at Antiquorum in in May this month. Uh, I think it was kind of just discovered as well. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, appeared at auction before. I, I could be wrong about yeah, that. It, and it's it, 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 it has. It, yeah, it sold apparently in a small auction in France about 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. That's right. What's That's right. I'm looking at the lot now. And that's what it says. Actually, really excited about this watch. Uh, two years ago, when I went to the Paddock Museum, and I was I was invited for a private tour with uh, the guys from Ming, which was quite nice. Um, I randomly just ran into James at Waitlisted in Geneva, and then he um, got me an extra invite to the private tour, and um, we had kind of the the best tour guide from what I gathered. And um, I was really asking her a lot of, you know probably annoying questions um, throughout the tour, but one of them was on this chameleon. And at the time I'd asked her, was that one, the piece unique? Because the only time I've ever seen that was in um, a, a photograph from uh, kind of one of Patek's, you know, favorite photographers back in the forties and fifties um, who got a shot of that watch. And then um, she had clarified that, no, it wasn't a piece unique, which was really exciting to me. And then randomly, you know, a few weeks back when, I was sent this um, little video teaser of this watch. It like blew my mind. It's, I mean, it's an incredible, it's an incredible, you know, timepiece. So it's, it's an exciting one to see for sure. Yeah. I wish, you know, it had an extract confirming everything it's ordered. Um, my understanding and experience is that Patek Philippe used to give priority to the auction houses for extracts and you could turn things around in a day or two, which is very helpful slash. I, I think understandable because they're such an important part of Patek Philippe's marketing that these things do well at auction and, and dominated auction. Uh, but I know it's been a frustration for people in the auction world to 
have to wait weeks, sometimes months to get an extract when you have deadlines and have to get these things live. Uh, one thing that I noticed, you know, trying to understand more about this watch because there's not much written about it in the in the notes of the auction. But if you look, there's a hallmark. It's blurry in the photo, but it seems to be that it's a French bracelet and probably the chameleon and everything was made in France. Actually, I think it's 750 with an eagle head, although it's blurry. Um, so then then the movement and, and dial were obviously Patek and put in there. Um, but and the, the, the dial on this watch appears to be reprinted um based on what we see it's not very high quality probably and no swiss below six o'clock um but it looks like it was cleaned or reprinted the crystal has a lot of wear and cracks um but it's just such an exceptionally beautiful and important watch so i was curious what the extract would say because of you know if it would say movement and and dial supplied only like it was made in france under contract um or if they assembled it in switzerland with those pieces imported that uh in i'd just be which i would presume is the case given we have the photograph of the one one of these but uh yeah i wonder are there more than only two you know made how many were made just an exceptionally beautiful and important watch maybe the most interesting ladies Patek Philippe watch ever um and uh certainly something uh I would love to own yeah it's definitely up there I mean what do you think though hundred thousand dollars do you think it's I I mean I think this should be quarter of a million or more whether it reaches that I don't know but it should be Uh, it's almost as if like the jewelry world should be interested in this I would I'd be curious to see if there's any you know, overlap where they think that it's smarter to put that, you know, I guess it's kind of hard to say, like, you know, I don't know if any of the jewelry pieces and the timepieces get cross promoted in other auction houses, but it seems like it should have been in a jewelry or design focused time or a design focused auction in general. Right. It should. And like, even this being like, a million dollar watch is not crazy when you think about Serpentis going for quarter of a million dollars plus. I had heard about a Serpenti recently that's half a million. Um, okay. Vintage one or a modern? Vintage. Um, wow. But, uh, you know, with the enamel and diamonds and things. But the, you know, I just think it's a very exceptional watch. The questions for me would be how many were made? Um, what's the extract say? Kind of important. If Patek won't issue an extract, that's important. If they, you know, I know a lot of people have had issues, dealers with Patek being more difficult about extracts. Uh, if, you know, part of the watch is from Gubelin or something like that versus Patek, they, they might not issue an extract. Uh, and in the past, they were more free about doing so um so yeah for some reason they say we're not issuing an extract because this is made in france or something else that honestly would have a big impact on value i think for many collectors even though it's very special so uh yeah there's some definitely some some questions but i think it's exceptional and very important 
Eric, the other one you mentioned at the top when we were teasing Antiquorum was the 570 with a black dial that does have the extract from the archives confirming it as a black dial. Uh, it's in a yellow gold case from the 1940s. Anything else you wanted to say about that one? It's got an estimate of fifty to 80,000 Swiss francs. And for those following along in their catalogs at home, it's lot 185 at, at Antiquorum. I think it looks the dial looks beautiful. I really like uh, gold, yellow gold cases with black dials. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the dial's been cleaned because if you look at the one and the two and twelve, the two is kind of hanging down. There's you can kind of see where the markers may have been moved and reapplied. The three is a little bit cattywampus, if you will. Looks like it's maybe been uh, removed and and reapplied, but super exceptional watch um for those looking at home if you look at the second photo the 11 o'clock you can kind of see almost like the feet there where that 11 o'clock marker may have been removed and then reapplied um but when the case is pretty soft but the dial is it's just a very unusual combination uh one watch i still think about um from the Patek 175 auction at Christie's in November 2014 was a reference 530 in yellow gold with a black dial. That was spectacular. I had a 96 in yellow gold with a black dial I loved and recently a reference 600 pocket watch in yellow gold with a black dial. It just is a a special combination as Wiz Khalifa would say that black and yellow uh, can't beat it. Eric, you said the case is soft. Maybe this will make for terrible radio, but can you point just to kind of more generally speaking, even just on the 570 or padded cases like this in general, kind of what a, what a few of the giveaways are for you that, that the case is soft like this? Okay, so uh, if you look on this particular watch, you can see it in the second photo. There's a hallmark just below the crown, uh, kind of in line with the four o'clock marker. It's pretty. It's there still, but it's clearly polished away. When you look at the definition of the lugs and the bezel, the the lug holes are kind of worn worn out a little bit, and and the the lugs are pretty soft without a lot of definition. These watches, you know, had quite a lot of definition, having had steel and white gold and yellow gold examples. But the reality is, most of these are have been polished. You know. 99% or something like that. Um so it's not, you know, an uncommon thing. Uh sometimes with a lot of watches you you need to see them in person to truly know how bad it is. Like photos can only get you part of the way there. So it could be a watch that you hold in your hand and it's you know all you can look at is how soft the edges of the case are and the bezel, or it could just be that you're overtaken by how nice the black dial is. And, uh, and it doesn't matter as much when it's on the wrist. And, and that's really not something that, you know, you can tell except by, except in person. Speaking of watches that you can tell how bad they are, um, by the photographs, there's a PVD, um what is referred to as anonymous watch but it's actually a rolex daytona modded with blue hour markers i mean that is just atrocious but it's interesting that they do cite it as anonymous i mean they're not trying to get uh letters from rolex it looks like lot 154 
Yeah, that was very interesting because in the past, um, you know, you would just say Rolex or things like that. But my understanding is that Rolex has sent some letters to the auction houses regarding modified pieces that have shown up for auction and they were very strongly worded. Uh, So, um, I love it. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand their perspective. There's, there's, you know, the problem I think for some of these people buying quote, you know, customized quote, custom watches is they think Rolex will sort of, will service them in the future. Uh, and you know, these are watches you can get at a lot of well-known retailers and things like that that are modified. And then, you know, they bring it to Rolex five or 10 years later and (laughs) Rolex goes crazy. So, and they don't really understand what they purchased. Um, So it it remains an issue. We've got a few minutes left. Anything else you want to highlight about the the Geneva auctions more broadly or talking about specific lots, I suppose, antiquarum or otherwise. I think the big thing, a big thing we'll be seeing what, what happens with the Christie's Jorn auction. Um, you know, I think, uh, my understanding is a lot of those, you know, I think they've been somewhat public about it, but came from Watchbox uh, and the Govberg collection. Um, so it's, you know, Jorn has held on pretty steady over the last year, and there's a lot of heavy, heavy hitters in there. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a matter of supply and demand, and whether there's enough demand there to meet the 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 supply of 39 pieces in the auction. I thought it was 40 lots, and now it's 39. So I'm not sure what happened to one of them, but. Um, there's 39 lots listed. It'll be interesting. Do you have any guesses? I mean, if I had to guess, I know there's a subscription tourbillon in there. I would guess sort of the the high profile, like genuinely rare early stuff would do well, and maybe a little bit softer, more moderate results towards the the lower level stuff. Is that you agree with that in broad strokes, or is that crazy? No, I agree with that. They have number two for the subscription tourbillon. They have a pre-subscription resonance. Those are the two biggest pieces, lot 2038 and 2039 uh, to end the auction. Um, So those will be, you know, serious, serious watches. Um, But, you know, I'll be very, very curious to see the rest. Has anyone ever heard of FP Jorn bidding on their own watches at auction? I know that some brands will do that, RM. They they do have a certified pre-owned. Uh, program, which I, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but I would attribute that to one of the, the things that helped stabilize and cause the Jorn market to grow just when they were buying discontinued models at auction. And, uh, you know, that's just smart. Like Longa should have a certified pre-owned program, but I don't think they do. Um, maybe that's partially because they're part of a bigger you know bigger bigger group but you know the bigger groups i think act stupidly in many respects uh and it's just a huge bureaucracy um but you know if these independent companies can be a little bit more nimble and not have to have 20 meetings about you know 
<laughs> making one minor little tweak in their strategy. So uh, I think that's helpful. Need to be small and nimble like the Wind Vintage team. I was excited <laughs> about the uh, the rare watches sale the next day at Christie's. It seems like there's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, is there anything that stood out to you guys? One watch that I'm kind of interested to see is the uh, Peter Knoll. 2497 and pink gold um that's a watch i've tracked for uh almost nine years actually so um it was up for consideration to be in the patek 175 auction and the owner wanted too much money ended up going to phillips in uh fall 2015 there were big, big, you know, the owner certainly thought it was like a million dollar plus watch. Uh, and it only went for about 500 hammer, 593 Swiss all in. And I think the owner who may have had a partner or something was ready to jump off the Brooklyn bridge at that point. Uh, but, uh, it's obviously probably changed hands since then. A famous dealer bought it at that time, and now it's at Christie's. So it's a it has personal significance because I met Peter Knoll. Uh, Peter was from the Knoll family. Uh, that's you know famous for furniture, and Peter would come into the Christie's auction previews every time and kind of look around, usually wearing one of the sickest vintage Blanc Pond watches you've ever seen. Uh, diver. Peter um, bought that watch from the Time Museum auction. I think it was truly new old stock and then had kind of worn it for many years. I was like, this is the grail and a blanc pond for me. It was part of the Time Museum collection and auction and and he was had worn it. But Peter struggled with uh, drug abuse, even though he was a big, big watch collector. So he had reportedly been thrown out of the Patek Philippe Christmas party and been told never to return, even though he was a big buyer. And, uh, you know, as the kind of years went along, John Reardon and I were talking and we were like, where's Peter? He used to come to every single auction, you know, preview. We'd talk to him and talk about the old days of watch collecting and what used to be in his collection and that 2497, which by the way is from 1970, but he bought it secondhand and had kind of the cojones to engrave his name on the back. Peter has null 1980. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of a crazy thing, but, you know, it was clear he had, you know, kind of the demeanor, like he had been a drug addict or was still a drug addict at that time uh and one day i as you can imagine i get all kinds of auction alerts on my in my email and i get an alert about some watch like a movado chronograph or something and it was from the collection of peter s knoll in this small auction called showplace auctions in new york and i immediately google peter knoll and he had died of exposure in his own house uh, in New York City, a brownstone, a multi-million dollar home uh, that he had not had power 
or heat to the house for several years, but was still living there and was living with a space heater and died of, he froze to death in his own home. And his daughter had not seen him for several years because of his drug addiction and difficulties. So, um, the, the, it was pretty devastating when I saw the article basically in 2018 and I sent it to John and we were freaking out, couldn't believe it. And other people that knew Peter. Um, so then I immediately was looking at what was in the auction and he had an interesting Movado and the kind of Patek style five, six, five case, but it was super polished and he had a collection of personalized unused straps with PSK on the back that were Patek Philippe and Audemars Piguet straps. He had some books, which I bought his his library. And uh, I was looking for the Blanc Pond, but it wasn't there. So unfortunately, it was probably either taken off his body at some point or, um, you know, he traded it for drugs or something. Who knows? But uh, it was... Uh, that's a watch that has some meaning when I hold it, having having looked at it for for many years, and it's a pretty exceptionally beautiful watch, twenty four ninety seven in pink gold, early example. So that's the watch that stood out to me just from a watch perspective. I knew the history of the watch a little bit, but not all of that. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that our listeners got a little treat there. That's great, Eric. Yeah, and by the way, the just to show you, I mean, people think that. Um, you know, it's all making money in this world of watches, but I think the owners of the watch had paid 800k for it in 2014, and they were asking, I believe, over a million dollars in 2014. Ended up putting it at auction, something like 1.2 or something like that. They put it obviously at uh, at Phillips in November 2015, and it went for. 500 hammer after starting at 400 and so i think that if the two people that i think owned it together had partnered it they each lost 150k uh it's crazy well that brings us to basically an hour of recording uh do you guys want to leave it there for the day sounds great well thanks again for the time everyone and we will uh we'll talk to you again Maybe before auctions, if not, we'll have an auction recap coming soon. As usual, rate the uh, podcast on iTunes. Leave a review written. Otherwise, it doesn't count. We haven't gotten a lot of uh, reviews recently. so let's... We're going to get some one stars after all of the... As, the... as the phone continues to ring in the background, this is probably not the best one to request some reviews for. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll, we'll catch you again in a couple weeks. Thank you.